Hello and welcome back to Three Things. Today, we've got a conversation with Adam Grant, an organizational psychologist who's been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. His new book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, is about questioning assumptions, viewing life as a series of experiments, and training your mind to be more open. He also shares the secret to reasoning with unreasonable people, or how to disagree more productively. This is Three Things with Adam Grant. Adam, great to have you. I can't imagine a more important time for the work you do. How are <laughs> you. you? How are you? You know, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm also thinking, I feel like I could have done more good if I got into something related to immunology or, you know, anything that could help with COVID. But I guess this is the next best thing. Uh, I know we're going to talk a lot uh, about your uh, new book, Think Again, but let's start a little bit more personal. How have you been? How is your wife? How are your kids doing? Um, thank you for asking. It's been, I mean, it's, I, I think like for everyone else, it's been a, a year that's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. Uh, I, I've been a big advocate of working from home for a long time, or at least giving people the flexibility to do that. I had never tried doing that while three kids were going through online school. So that's, <laughs> that's been a trip, but overall, I think we're very lucky and it's, it's been a pretty good year, all things considered. How about you? Uh, it's been it's been decent. I have two seniors in high school, so I've kind of felt bad for them. This is the I think senior year in high school is such a good memory year uh, and marking year. But they're ready to go to college, and I'm I'm pretty optimistic right now about the months to come. How about you? I'm I'm starting to feel optimistic too. It's looking it's looking like good news is on the horizon. You know, this pandemic in many ways has been a bit of a sabbatical from our lifestyles, not from our lives, but our lifestyles. Um, it's almost like our personal lives is like a boat that was never meant to be out of the water and now it's out of the water and we get to look at it. Uh, I'm curious, what is what are some of the things that you thought were essential in your life that no longer are and that you are either going to do a lot less of or none of? I, I basically have learned that I don't need to leave my house ever for anything. Is that what you want to do? Uh, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm obviously, you know, I miss, I miss when I give a talk, right? Having a live audience. Uh, I miss seeing people at conferences, but I really, I really have not missed having to go anywhere. And I think, you know, like a lot of people, I plan to travel a lot less than I used to. Let's talk a little bit about mental health, which I know you care about deeply. And, uh, and I think the pandemic is going to tell untold stories about this. Uh, what are you most worried about as it relates to mental health in the future? I think, I think what I'm most worried about is that we're, we're probably better at diagnosing and recognizing mental health challenges, but we haven't improved that much in actually treating them. Uh, and I think, you know, culturally, there's still a tremendous amount of stigma associated with having mental health difficulties, right? You can tell someone that you went to the doctor because you hurt your leg, but if you're depressed or anxious or have any other reason to seek out therapy, that for too many people is something they have to hide, right? It's, it's seen as a sign of incompetence or instability as opposed to saying, you know what, your mind is part of your body, right? And, and taking care of that is at least as important as caring for your physical health. And I, I think that as a, you know, an overarching problem prevents a lot of people from getting help. It prevents us from really understanding, you know, what the most effective treatments are for different kinds of mental health problems. So that's, I guess that's my biggest concern. You know, the optimism in me thinks that if enough people now are going to have to deal with this, it may become more mainstream in some ways. And that, you know, the, the, we can take this out of being a shameful kind of experience into something that we all kind of handle. I hope so. 
Yeah. I think it's a possibility. I think, you know, if, if there are silver linings of COVID, one of them might be normalizing struggle that we've just, and partially because you have a window into, into people's homes, right? How many colleagues have you had with piles of dirty dishes in their sink where you say, oh, that's, that's mine? Or the, the other day I was on a Zoom call and um, I, was, I was in my office upstairs and uh, the, the person on the other end said, you know, your office looks really neat. And I tilted the camera down and they're just piles of mail everywhere, right? They're just not in the shot. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's small, small moments of vulnerability like that just they remind us that everybody is human, right? Everybody has challenges. And I think the more that we see, the easier it is for people to acknowledge and work through their mental health struggles. What have you done personally to take care of your mental health? I guess one thing that I've, I've thought about a lot through this pandemic is that I'm, I'm long on meaning and short on happiness. Uh, I think there are, you know, there are choices we make every day. And, and Rick, you've, you've spent part of your life sort of navigating this, this dilemma, right? Where you can choose the thing that's easy and fun, or you could choose the thing that's meaningful and hard. And I think I've mostly leaned in, in the latter direction. One of the things that the pandemic has made me realize is I haven't done a good job making joy a priority in my life. Uh, and this, this idea of having something to look forward to, right? Not, not just something that matters, but something that's exciting, uh, is, is something I probably don't have enough of in my life. And so one of the things I've started doing is, is sitting down with, uh, with our kids at, at dinner every week and saying, okay, when the pandemic's over, who do we want to see? What do we want to do? Where do we want to go? Uh, what's at the top of the list? Uh, we've, been, we've been going back and forth. The kids loved a couple of the, the trips that we went on. And so they want to revisit. Like, we, we, have to, we have to go to Turks and Caicos again. Like, but we've already been to Turks and Caicos. Maybe we should go to Costa Rica or Iceland. And so we're, we're trying to negotiate that right now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pivot and get into the book. Um, it is my favorite of all your books. I really enjoy Think Again. It really spoke to the way I think, to the way I think our company thinks. Um, and, and I highly recommend it if you're listening to this. But for those who have not read it, you know, to me, the basic premise is, is and you talk about it, it's in this fast-changing world, the cognitive, cognitive skills of of kind of learning and thinking are just not enough. And that we need this whole new set of skills of almost like rethinking and, and relearning. Um, you know, what drove you to do this research and, and, and write this book? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you liked it. Uh, I don't know if you just disliked the others or if you really enjoyed this one, but That's I'm glad it's your favorite. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to follow up on that one. Uh, I, I'm assuming you listened to it, by the way, uh, on no, audio. Is I, that no, no, I read it. Oh, you actually read it. Oh, interesting. Yes. I thought you were yeah. more of an audiobook guy. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm slow at both. So I Got retain it. a lot better the other way. Interesting. Okay. So I think I, I've had a lot of experiences that led me to want to write Think Again. But one of the pivotal ones actually happened in the winter of 2018. I went to a bunch of CEOs and I said, hey, you know, obviously I think there's going to be a hybrid future of work where many people will get to work from anywhere part of the time. I'd love to run a remote Friday experiment where you give people one day a week to work from anywhere. And every single CEO I pitched said, no, thank you. They said, we can't open Pandora's box. We think our culture is going to fall apart. Everyone's going to procrastinate. Working from home will not work. And now a number of those CEOs have now, <laughs> they've actually announced that we're going to be permanently remote workforces. And I'm thinking, 
you could have had all of 2018 and 2019 to practice on Fridays to figure out how to get productivity and collaboration and culture going remote before this pandemic forced us all to rethink. And Rick, what was so funny to me about this is we already had good evidence that people could do this. Right. Pre-pandemic, there were um, there was a great experiment at um, a call center in China showing that the people were about 13 and a half percent more productive from home. They were half as likely to quit. And that was full time. I'm like, this is just one day a week. Give people the flexibility. And so, at, you know, at some point I, I run into that brick wall and I say, OK, my job is to think again. And I'm having a really hard time getting other people to do it. Why is it so difficult and how do we change it? So. It's interesting. First of all, guilty as charge. Uh, you did not ask me that question, <laughs> I but I would I have given you that answer. So, so, you know, we, we, so, and, and I have changed my mind about it. Wait, how uh, have you rethought it? You know, we're going to figure it out. I think this is, there's too much dust in the air. So we're going to experiment a lot. We're going to try different things. We're going to make them a, a revolving door kind of decision. Uh, and we collectively will figure out what's the right balance between all the things we're trying to balance coming out of it. I can tell you it won't be the same. It will be different uh, and it will change and evolve like everything does. But in many ways, the, the basic thing I think you're fighting against is like this notion that people are set in their ways. Is that really at the core of this? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to look around and see people who are kind of too attached to their routines or their habits. But I think behind those, right, are a bunch of, of mental routines that stand in the way of changing our behaviors. And I think that, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of reasons why people have a hard time changing their minds. I think sometimes it's uh, what's called cognitive entrenchment, which is where you have so much experience doing things a certain way that you don't even see the assumptions you're making. And you just take, take for granted, well, this is the way we've always done it. Um, in other cases, it's much more ego-driven. I don't want to admit that I was wrong because uh, then I've probably made a bunch of mistakes and I'm going to feel a little bit embarrassed by that too. And I think for, for a lot of people, it's just saying, hey, you know what? I prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. And Rick, part of what I want to do is I want to encourage people to adopt the exact mentality you just described, which is to say, you know what? We don't know yet. So we're going to run experiments. That's how you stay open-minded. Were you, uh, how much of this book is about almost like self-prescription? How much of it is you're trying to get better at thinking again, or how much is it uh, the, uh, the opposite? You know me too well. Uh, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. I think some of the moments I'm proudest of in my life have been moments when I rethought very quickly and I was able, I was able to pivot. I, I think a simple example is uh, when I wrote a, I was supposed to write a book proposal for my first book, Give and Take, and I got so into it that I accidentally wrote the whole book, <laughs> which is not something I recommend to anyone. Yeah, I just I, I got so excited about the ideas and I, I had yeah, I'd been doing this research for a decade already. And I, I had a lot of the material in my head and I just ran with it. And I, I spent the summer and I wrote the book and I sent it to my agent. And he said, this is so bad that I don't even think your academic colleagues will read it. <laughs> and I had to throw away over 100,000 words, but I did it quickly. And, I, and he said, you know, just write like you teach. Don't write like you do research. And all of a sudden it clicked. I'm like, oh, that's the book I'm supposed to write. And that was a great moment of rethinking. It was a much better book afterward. It changed the way that I communicate. And, you know, it, it sort of opened a door to this, you know, this different career I have now of, of sharing ideas outside of, of universities. And on the flip side of that, the moments I've most regretted in my life are moments when I failed to think again. 
I've I've had so many experiences of just sticking to my guns when I should have been flexible. And so there's some research going on here, not just research. That is that is very interesting. I think we've all had a lot of research in the in this last year uh, in, in, in a beautiful way. You know, in, in, in give and take, it was a bit more of a, of a binary argument. You know, there's the givers and the takers. And I think when, when you did originals, it was more examples that you were trying to play. You used a very defined framework for this book, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about people. Um, tell us about that framework and how you got to it. Yeah, it was a little bit of a... <laughs> so yeah, give and take was, was very much anchored in, you know, what's, what's your style of interaction? Are you a giver, are you a taker, or do you hover somewhere in between as a matcher? And I, I felt a little bit constrained by the framework. And so when I wrote originals, I said, okay, I'm gonna start with a, a question, not a model. And then I felt like that was a little bit too loose. Uh, and it, it wasn't as clear what the, the, the thesis or the cohesive message was. And so when I sat down to, th to write Think Again, I said, okay, I want a framework that I can work with, but that stays flexible as opposed to forces me into one way of viewing the world. And I'd written about half the book and all of a sudden it just, it clicked that my colleague Phil Tetlock had, had written this paper that captured what I was trying to describe perfectly. And his, Phil's view was we spend too much time preaching, prosecuting, and politicking. Uh, so when you're in preacher mode, you're convinced you're right. Uh, and you're trying to proselytize your views. When you're in prosecutor mode, you're trying to prove the other person wrong and win your argument. And when you're in politician mode, you're lobbying for the approval of an audience and trying to, to win them over. And it just, all of a sudden it hit me that these are the things we do instead of rethinking, right? If, if, if you're preaching and prosecuting, you've already decided you're right, everybody else is wrong, you don't need to change your mind. And if you're politicking, you're just gonna tell people what they wanna hear, but you're probably not changing what you really think. And what I loved about this, this way of viewing the world is to say, look, we all have moments, right? Where we get stuck in this, this mindset. My, my biggest vice is to be a prosecutor. Right? When, when I think someone is wrong, it becomes almost my moral responsibility to correct them. Uh, and that tends not to go well. So I, I thought that was a, a fun worldview to, to, to work with. Where, where did you come down on it? Do you see yourself in these styles of thinking? You know, I, I think the problem, I, I am definitely not, I don't think I'm a prosecutor because I think that's an issue with IQ. When your IQ is 30 points higher than other people like yours, then you have that need. Uh, I've never had that issue. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think we, we have uh, a little bit of everything uh, depending on, on the communication, where, who are we communicating? But, but your conclusion here is that none of those are a safe or a healthy way of, of approaching, uh, but the, that we gotta be more scientists. And, and tell me how you have evolved then to become more of a scientist. Yeah, I, I don't mean when I say think like a scientist that you should go out and buy a microscope or a telescope, right? Although it could be a fun hobby. But what I mean is value humility over pride and curiosity over closure. That when you have an idea, you don't let it become your identity or your ideology, right? It's just a hypothesis. And it might be wrong. It might be right. Um, the, uh, the data on, you know, teaching business people and entrepreneurs to think like scientists are staggering, right? You just randomly assign new entrepreneurs to think like scientists. And over the next year on average, they bring in 40 times more revenue than a control group does because they become more comfortable pivoting. 
uh, when you know when their product launch doesn't work or when their service flops instead of you know trying to prove that they were right all along they're like all right hypothesis was wrong my experiment didn't work let me go try a new one so i've been trying to adopt that in the way that i communicate with other people uh, i've had I've had a history of, you know, if you go back to the the CEOs I was trying to talk into, you know, Remote Friday, uh, I just started hammering them with data points and with logic, and it really wasn't getting through to them. And so now what I've tried to do is I've tried to go to, to humility and curiosity, which is to say, all right, if somebody doesn't believe my, my data right off the bat, uh, instead of arguing with them, I'm going to say, well, I, I actually don't understand how this person thinks, right? I'm not going to be so arrogant to know what's going to persuade them. I need to be curious. So I just ask, well, what evidence would change your mind? Very and in a lot of cases, they, they, they say, well, I'd love to see a study like this. I'm like, great. I have that study. I wouldn't have thought to bring it to you. <laughs> and that, that's a great start. And then you're going the to prosecutor mode. <laughs> then, then I go into let's, let's preach about the virtues of science together. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So it's interesting if we come back to this. You wrote this book in many ways, the book itself was rethinking how you wrote books. Yeah, it was, it was a big rethinking of how I wrote books, in part because I, I remember um, sitting down with Malcolm Gladwell right after Originals came out, and he was, he was hosting an interview on my book event, where, or on my book tour, where he, he said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grill you about the book a little bit. And his first critique was that I didn't put enough of myself into it that I was writing about other people's, you know, other people's experiences and stories. And yeah, I had some of my own research in there, but it was, it was mostly me as kind of detective. And he said, you do this stuff. I want to hear your story. And, and, you know, there's, then there was a whole side conversation about, you know, hello pot, I'm kettle. <laughs> you don't, right, you don't right, write right, about right. yourself either. <laughs> but that, that aside, I thought it was a, it was a really important note. And so I, I decided to rethink keeping myself out of the story and say, look, this is hard. I've screwed it up a lot. Let me write about my mistakes and what I've learned from them. And the hope is that we could all do a little bit more of that. That's cool. So when is too much rethinking? What is the right amount of rethinking? When, when, how, do, how, do you, how do you guard that? I really struggled with this one in the book because I think the, the sweet spot is going to be different for every person in every decision. Mm. Uh, the closest I could come to the right amount was uh, the research on super forecasters. So these people who compete in tournaments to predict future events, like who's going to win the next World Cup or who's going to win a given presidential election. The average person, when they make a prediction like that, they'll then revise it twice in a tournament and say, all right, you know, I got some new information, need to update my forecast a little bit. Maybe my favorite player got injured. And so now my, my team is not going to win the World Cup anymore. What differentiated the super forecasters, the best of the best, was not how hard they worked, not even how smart they were. It was how often they updated their forecasts. On average, they changed their minds four times instead of two. And what I loved about that was to say, look, I'm not suggesting that you have to rethink every decision you make 72 times, right? It's just saying one or two more extra moments of reflection to say rethinking doesn't have to change your mind. It just means being open to reconsidering. I think that's a step in the right direction. You know, I, I, uh, I listened to your conversation with, uh, with JJ, a mutual friend of ours, and, uh, and I thought this conversation, this part of your dialogue was really interesting because for him, you know, he has a finite product. He's writing something. He's doing a script. He's doing, you know, a show. And it led me to a thought that I just wanted to share with you. I, I think rethinking um, 
a complicated thing, something has an A and a Z, you can overthink something, like you're done, you're done. But the reality is that most of the things that you and I deal with are complex problems, meaning we only have 40% of the facts, and as we get more and more facts, it is on us to continue to rethink. Yet, you know, we're so prideful that, you know, we still say, well, even though I have new facts, I'm not going to deal with them because I already made I, I think you're onto something there, Rick. And the, the way you just articulated that is powerful because it says, hey, wait a minute, the more complex the issue is, the less confident you should be in your first instinct, right? Or your early intuition, because it's based on incomplete information. And that speaks to something that super forecasters do that I've started adopting in my own life, which is the best forecasters, when they form an opinion, they just make a list of conditions that would change their mind. And they do that to stay honest, to say, once I've gotten attached to a forecast, I'm going to just justify it. And if I can instead, right up, right up front, before I've gotten too committed to it, say, well, if the following things were to change in the world, then my opinion would have to shift with it. That's the way that I stay open-minded. I think we could all do that. That's interesting. You know, you talk about the, the reason why a lot of people don't rethink is because it may go against their own beliefs. And you know, especially in a time like this where everything seems to be so up in the air, we're holding on to our beliefs more than we hold on to anything else. So it, it is, you know, this may not be the, the time that a lot of rethinkers are born <laughs> because we're holding to our beliefs. But I, you know, we run, this is a bit of an irony. I read all this and you know, we run our company by a set of beliefs. Uh, and in the middle of that belief is, we believe that everything is written in pencil. So we have a belief that in itself contradicts itself, right? Uh, and I was like, wow, it is circular logic, but in many ways it gives us permission to constantly rethink. And, you know, and we have set up our, our compensation structures and everything else so that we align kind of behavior. But uh, it was really a, an interesting uh, license for us to rethink as a culture. I, I think that, gosh, I'd love to see more companies do that, right? Because you're, you're saying, hey, you know what? Our beliefs are always rough drafts. And there's always room to rethink and revise them. I, what I would say there is it doesn't have to be circular if you redefine that as a value rather than a belief, right? Your, your value there is learning and improving. And that means your beliefs have to stay flexible. Yeah. You know, I had a debate with somebody between, you know, difference between value and beliefs. And I concluded that it's just the meaning we give the word, right? It's like it can, the word can mean whatever it means to somebody. For us, a belief is something that we choose versus a value is something, you know, it's more of a verb than a noun. Therefore, we use it. But I can see the other argument of, oh, a, of a belief. Yeah, so it's, it's something that is inactive. That's how we recruit. That's how we, you know, that's, that's the things that we talk about. And if you want to work here, it's the kind of things you have to believe. Uh, so are more action basis. That's very interesting. I've, I've, I guess for a long time, thought about values as what you see as important and beliefs as what you think is true. To me, those are that's what you value versus values. But again, it's semantics. It really doesn't matter. I want to go. I want to go into a topic that I think you brought up is is this notion of humility and the importance of humility in in being able to rethink things. Um, tell us more about that. Well, I think you know a lot of us have gotten trapped in overconfidence cycles, right? Where you know you you start to believe in something and then you surround yourself with people who believe the same things and then you're vulnerable to group polarization where you become more extreme and more entrenched and then you're competing with the people in the group to see who's who who can hold the belief most strongly and most passionately and you you just get really arrogant i think that 
one of my favorite ways to, to maintain humility is to keep an ignorance list, which is for me, a list of things that you don't know. So when I was writing, when I was writing, thinking, I mean, it's, it's an impossibly long list, but you can break it down in a way that's pretty simple. Um, when I was writing Think Again, I said, okay, let me just pick things in the world that I don't understand very well. So I wrote down uh, chemistry, financial markets, uh, art, music, fashion. <laughs> there's, like, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I just am clueless about. And I, I wanted to, to write it down for two reasons. One was I wanted the list to keep growing. And every time I came across something that I either didn't know or I met someone who knew more than me about it, I would add it to my ignorance list. And secondly, I wanted to then get curious and say, okay, why am I, why am I choosing to be so ignorant in these areas? And who are the people who are knowledgeable that I could learn from on them? Uh, and I think that's, it's kept me in a learning mindset instead of saying, ah, those are, those are not areas of interest to me, and so I'm not going to be curious about them. You know, I, I think there's a lot about humility uh, as a culture that really kind of matters in terms of your ability to continue to grow. Because the, op the only other way you grow is when you're desperate. The only way you grow is like, okay, we don't have a choice. And, and if you think about, you know, the whole inno innovator's dilemma is companies that get overly confident um, and lose their opportunity to be desperate and they get completely blown out of the water. So I, I think that real companies, you know, have to use humility to combat, you know, kind of the, this notion of, uh, you know, a sinking ship. Tell us more about desperation as a motivator. De desperation as a motivator is, is such an interesting animal. So the, my read of the data on this is that the time that the companies are least likely to innovate is when they're on top of the world. Because like you say, they, they get complacent, they fall victim to the fat cat syndrome, and they, they basically rest on their laurels. And then over over commitment to the very things that made them great are, it then becomes responsible for their downfall right i think if if you study the history of sears or kodak or blockbuster right or the, or even ram with blackberry right they they were overly attached to the very products that that launched their success uh, and the strategies that that made them excellent and i think the flip side of that is desperation right when your back is against the wall when you have no slack resources when you know you you have to change in order to survive and succeed uh, that's when you really throw everything against the wall and say all right i've got to rethink because you know what if i don't we are doomed right so how do you, how do you bring that urgency i think is through humility i think that's uh, is what you're bringing in is that innocence Let's change a little bit of the topic. I, I've heard you talk a lot about the importance of diversity and, and good decision making and diverse voices and, and you know, gender, race, all those different things and how hard that is to do. So that, that I agree with factually, but I, I'm really curious as to, do we need to be thinking about diversity of the type of people and how they think? Do we need thinkers and rethinkers on teams so that we in itself can, can lead to better decisions? That's interesting. I would say yes. I think one of the reasons why people are excited about the potential of demographic diversity is it's often a proxy for diversity of thought, right? So a, bun a bunch of white American men are more likely to think similarly than if we bring in some women, if we bring in some people of color, right? So I think you, you get some of that on average by bring, bringing in people who have different backgrounds, different experiences, uh, who come from different cultures and different places. I, I don't think it's always true, though, right? And if, if we look at the data, one of the things we see is, you know, sometimes if you take somebody who um, 
let's say uh, you take somebody who grew up black in an affluent community who went to an Ivy League school and then worked at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, right? Odds are that that person is going to bring a little bit less diversity of thought than somebody who came from an underprivileged socioeconomic background, right? So, yeah, I think we, we want to do everything we can to, to try to bring in people who are, you know, thinking in different ways, who are pushing us to rethink. And I think that's, that's part of the value of diversity. There's, uh, there's some brilliant research by Kathy Phillips and her colleagues, which shows that if you put homogeneous people together in a group, that they feel more comfortable and they perform worse. And that if you, if you have a more heterogeneous group, uh, it's more mixed in, in gender or race, uh, they, they are also more uncomfortable, right? Uh, but they perform better even though they think they did worse. And it, it's super interesting. So one of, one of the mechanisms behind it is when you're uncomfortable, when you say, you know what, hey, I'm, I'm not sure if these people are all going to fully understand me. I'm not sure how smooth our interactions will be in the group. You prepare more. You process information more thoroughly. You explain yourself more clearly. And that's actually good for the group's problem solving and decision making. And so I guess one of my lessons from that is we ought to get comfortable being uncomfortable because the very thing that, that makes us a little bit hesitant around diversity can actually help us unlock the value in diversity. Amen to that, for sure. Um, you know, I am a bit obsessed and super saddened by the fact that our country is so polarized. And, you know, everybody has their own set of facts. Everybody listens to their own news. And I, I'm almost hopeless until I read your chapter on the Yankees and Red Sox, right? I thought there was like a really interesting nugget there that I, I think we need to pull that thread on. And, you know, I, I think you, you talked about it, it wasn't about humanizing the fans that made them, you know, you know, see the other side. It was something about understanding how they became fans. Tell us about that study and tell us, can we use that in a way to bring this country together? I don't know if it's going to solve all our problems, but it was it was certainly a bright spot for me in the year, which was to say, OK, yeah, if you if you're a Yankees fan trying to get you to see the humanity in a Red Sox fan, good luck with that. Right? You've, <laughs> you have a lifetime of experience suggesting these these people are, are not worthy of my respect. Uh, so after after trying a bunch of, of those strategies that failed, uh, Tim Kundra and I said, OK, maybe maybe what we need is counterfactual thinking to rewind the circumstances of your own life and wonder what, what would I have become if I had grown up under, you know, under different circumstances. And so one of, one of the experiments, uh, or one of the versions of, of several experiments we ran was asking Yankees and Red Sox fans, uh, if you were born in the other city, what team do you think you'd root for? And all of a sudden, Yankees fans said, wait a minute, if I grew up in Boston, I would be a Red Sox fan. What the It does not compute. And what that did was it led a lot of them to realize, you know what? Beliefs are not set in stone. They're potentially malleable. And you are more than the team you root for or the group you belong to. And so they, they were then less judgmental of the other side. They were less likely to show hostility toward them. And we found recently the same thing works um, with people on opposite sides of the gun debate where if you think about you know, being born, um, if you're liberal, being born in a hunting family, or if you're a conservative, being born in Columbine, uh, all of a sudden you, you start to see the other side as, as much more human saying, I could have been a member of that group if my life had played out differently. And I think maybe that's a path to empathy. What do you think? Wow, you know, Adam, I, I always believe that true adulthood 
is when you revisit your beliefs and decide which ones are yours and which ones were put on you. You know, I don't know the data, but I, I, would, I would bet any amount of money that the majority of people that follow a political party is because that was the party that their parents follow. And then it's because what the grandparents follow and the grandparents follow. And, and, and you know, if you really think how ridiculous that is, where we really never stop to think about, you know, where does this belief come from and do I really believe it? Uh, in many ways, it gets to the same point. So I've always, I always felt that, and maybe it's because I was born in a different country and you come with a different kind of ideology uh, of sorts. Um, I, wanted, I have two quick questions that I want to get to, if, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned a study also about how, um, uh, how employees were treated at work and how that bled into how they treated the, their families. Um, I, I want to know more about that because I, I do believe that you know, for us, our most important constituency is our employees. And I, I want to hear from you because I think that has so much implications on how they behave outside of work. I, tell us about that study. This is a, it's a classic. Conan Schooler, sociologists, uh, originally did this study with men. Then they followed up with women. It's been replicated in a few countries now. The basic finding is that people who are micromanaged at work, who are controlled by their bosses, then become more controlling parents at home with their kids. And if the, I guess the underlying idea is that if you're robbed of freedom in one domain of your life, then you work extra hard to seize it in another. And the, the scary thing was the, the way that they studied this was they actually showed that parents who were micromanaged at work developed more authoritarian beliefs about how to raise their children. And it was, it was a light bulb moment for me because I realized, you know what? I've my whole career, I've been trying to figure out how to make work suck a little bit less. And the very things that I've wanted to do to jobs, right, to give people freedom, to empower them, um, are also good for their children. <laughs> this is the best case I've ever heard for designing meaningful jobs. If you don't, then you're going to raise a bunch of uh, of, of deprived or um, maybe criminally rebellious children. That <laughs> was the thought I had there. That is very interesting. Um, Last, uh, last question and then a, a closing thought. What, uh, let's say that a new book comes out in three years. What's it about? Am, am I writing it or reading it? Ooh, you know, there's so many books I want other people to write. Uh, I've, I've raised the bar for what's a topic worth exploring for me. In three years, I mean, I think one, one book I would be excited to work on is a book on the future of work. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously changed more, I would say, in the past year for most of us than in maybe our entire lifetimes, uh, or at least, you know, for many people, their whole careers. And so, you know, really, really, I guess it's a, it's a specific domain where I want to do a lot more rethinking to say, okay, what does a hybrid workplace look like? How do we manage culture and collaboration? And I haven't decided if it's, um, if it's too work-focused or if it's something that, as an organizational psychologist, I should definitely be tackling, but it's something I, I want to read, and so if no one else writes it, maybe I will. You know, I, I always like to ask people, when was the last time you changed your mind on something? Uh, as, as I thought, but you know, take it kind of a click above, and, and I'll give you my answer as well. What, what experience in your life has led you to make the most dramatic change in your opinion of something? You know, honestly, I was, I was one of those kids who, um, are you familiar with D.A.R.E., the, the program in schools to get kids not to use drugs? Yeah, so I, I remember in elementary school, I was, I was the kid who D.A.R.E. was designed for. 
Like I was, you know, I was the like the teacher's pet. I sat in the front row. I wanted to get perfect grades. I had never like I remember getting called to the principal's office. I had found out I wasn't in trouble, but I still cried. Like I, I, I really wanted to fit in and respect authority. And Dare worked wonders on me. I like, I came out of that program thinking drugs aren't just dangerous; they're morally wrong. Like alcohol, horrible thing in the world. And I think I had this ridiculous moral attitude that anyone who ever consumed any kind of substance uh, was a bad person. And then my best friend in high school uh, started drinking. And it completely shifted my view because I knew he was a great person and had you know, like rescued me from bullies and you know really been there for me in a way that that I never imagined a friend could be. And so after seeing that, I realized I had to radically rethink my views. That is excellent. How about you? You know, for me, it has been parenting. You know, I, I, I was raised in a, in a reasonably good household with good parents, but I knew that I was going to do some things differently and some things the same. I was surprised at how much was the same, right? <laughs> like even the things you complain about. Uh, and then my wife brings her own set of, you know, kind of uh, beliefs around raising kids. And we thought, you know, between both of us, reasonable people, we would come up with the, the right formula. And... You know, most of the things we believe going in, especially as you get into the teen years, you kind of blow up and you realize that you have to rethink everything about parenting. So I've always viewed that the role of being a parent has been super humbling. Um, in many ways, it, it has been um, desperate at times, but it's made us really build this muscle of rethinking, which I think it, it, it bleeds into our work, it bleeds into the rest of our lives. Rick, what's an example of something about parenting that you've rethought? Oh gosh, everything almost, Adam. Um, you know, I, I, I have two kids that are very different themselves. Um, and my son and my daughter, I love them to tears like every parent does. But, but we have to parent them 180 degrees differently for us to be, you know, so there's not one parenting. Uh, it is really very individual, and what you know, what what helps my son be the best version of himself is the opposite of what helps my daughter. So it's almost like you speak two languages in the same house, and they're like, "Well, why do they do that? Why can they do that?" Right? It's, like, it's not a simple one, but I love it. I, it's been such a good journey. Listen, Adam, I I I've, I am so appreciative of your knowledge, of your time, of your friendship. Uh, this has been great. Um, I can't wait for the next book. I Go solve another big problem uh, and teach us a lot. And uh, thanks again. Very humble. No, thank you, Rick. It's been great to be here. I think the world needs more leaders with your humility and curiosity. And I think the way that you, you just, you make rethinking sound like fun as opposed to a lot of work. And that's what we need. You're a good man. Be well. Stay great safe. to see you. How great was that? I can listen to Adam for hours. There's so much to learn. Here are the three things I took away from the conversation. Number one is the importance of our beliefs. The main takeaway for me was that if we're willing to have an open mind and reconsider beliefs, by definition, we will be more likely and willing to change our minds. How powerful. My second takeaway had to do with humility. I had never thought of it as a superpower. Having humility not only makes us more approachable, 
more likable and have people more likely to follow us, but it also makes us more likely to change our minds. Humility is at the core of many things. And third, I leave the conversation very intrigued by the power of empathy. If Yankees and Red Sox can stop hating each other by using empathy as a tool, imagine what it can do for society as we try to tackle very polarizing issues like race, inequity, or other religious-based positions. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.